This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 143. Well, just ahead, a tech company sees its stock crash after a predicted turnaround fails to take root. And forget the COVID vaccine. Pfizer has a new COVID product that could dominate sales this year. And a quietly growing tech company has a novel approach to internet security. We're going to talk to SailPoint CEO, Mark McLean. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. A-I-E-R-A.com. Okay, good. A-I-E-R-A. I see. All right. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms. As I do with every show, I do, in fact, listen to iTunes and then Spotify and then Google Play and then Stitcher and then iHeart and then tune on and tune in and more. I'm not just trying to boost our subscriber numbers. I really want to make sure everything's working, but you can do the same thing or just pick one and hit the subscribe button to catch every show. Definitely hit that subscribe button. And we're also uh, sponsored by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Joining me as always, Executive Producer Isaac Webster. Isaac, you're still in the land of the mask mandate in Los Angeles. Is that the only yeah. part of the state? It's one of the only parts of the state of our, our great state of California that will continue the mask mandate here. After Feb 15, um, yeah. Yeah, in LA County, we, we, you still have to wear a mask and show your vax cards, and I'm happy about that. Um, it's a little, yeah, it's a little uh, awful. What, not a little awful, it's terrible what has happened with this Omicron, but it seems to be um, waning, unfortunately, even as the death's still rising in California. Um, let's get to the stock market and look at some companies and find out the businesses behind some stocks in a move, Isaac. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Great question. Let's start with New Relic. New Relic. New Relic trades under NEWR. Shares have risen just over 14% over the past 12 months, roughly in line with the broader S&P, but a big drop today, 30% drop in uh, New Relic shares. Yeah, um, a company based uh, right here in San Francisco, uh, been around, founded in 2007, um, and they focus on internet monitoring, I'm sorry, infrastructure monitoring software that is helping, software that helps companies know what is happening with their systems as it happens. Um, they got obsoleted in, in a lot of ways. They have a faster growing competitor called Datadog. So while New Relic is growing double digits, Datadog is growing at 75% last quarter, really growing at a lot faster rate. New Relic losing business 
to Datadog. Now, it appeared that that had reversed last quarter. A bunch of changes at the company, really in the last year, but last quarter in particular, uh, they lowered uh, the number of products, their product stack, as they like to say, the fewer SKUs, fewer offerings. They put it all under one umbrella of New Relic One. Last quarter, earnings looked really strong. And all of a sudden, the most recent quarter comes back and a, a big um, decline in revenue growth. Revenue growth had been growing, you know, call it 20%, fallen to 19% when you'd hope that it would actually pick up. Losses continue. Their $11 million loss uh, will hit $13 million next quarter. In fact, that was just one part of the guidance that was down. The really bad part about their guidance was they had $204 million this quarter. They're going to have $204 million next quarter. And flat sequential guidance for a software as a service company is a bad thing. No, why? Is there not enough room in the end? Why can't they just compete with Datadog? Does uh, not it, customers it go around be, or what's the deal? plenty of customers, plenty of companies out there that want to know what's going on with their infrastructure. Uh, they just apparently don't have the right offerings. I mean, Datadog is offering some different kinds of products, and I'm not deep enough into the weeds to know uh, the difference there. We ought, ought to offer both companies to come on the show and talk about it. But um, fundamentally, um, the criticism was they just had too many offerings, that, that New Relic uh, was no longer new. And as they bolted on one new tool after the next, it just kind of confused customers. And they had to come back to market with a simpler product offering. But that uh, increase in revenues that seemingly uh, seemed to fix the company and indeed the stock price responding last quarter didn't seem to fix things in the long run. Here's CEO Bill Staples talking about really kind of trying to defend this, saying that um, they don't really know how they're going to use their whole new platform. Their customers don't really know either, trying to put a positive spin on it. Here's Bill Staples. If you think back to last year, we introduced a brand new platform, brand new pricing model, and this new consumption business model to market. Customers, even those who had been with us for a while, uh, didn't know how that would work, how that would play out, how they might use the whole platform. And so they were relatively conservative in their commitments. And we reported on some of that uh, conservatism throughout the year. This year with Q3, we had our first uh, relatively large renewal quarter of customers who had began the migration last Q3. And what we saw with this increased commitment is a lot more understanding of the platform and how it works and how they're going to consume it, especially for those who were consuming at or above their previous commitment level, uh, uh, increasing their commitments in a considerable way. So, you know, talking about existing customers adding to their commitment level, Sure, who doesn't like a nice more commitment? But I think adding new customers is also going to be really important for these guys. And that seems to be holding them back. You got to have new customers. You got to have new blood. Uh, Corey, what is your next drill down? A little company called Pfizer with some interesting information uh, with their quarterly report uh, this week. Pfizer, as many of us know at this point, is trades under PFE shares, rose 47% over the past 12 months but they've been sliding since mid-December. Um, when I was uh, writing up our script today, I kept typing Fife instead of Pfizer because uh, I'm listening to Tribe Called Quest. I don't know. But anyway, the late non great Non alert. Um, great quarter from Pfizer. I mean, so it was such an incredible quarter. I saw something which, which I never thought I'd see, which is a company that reporting 106% earnings growth uh, up to is that 24, good? $24 billion dollars. 
But but they even said that it was there was not it wasn't even worth comparing it to anything because it was so one time in nature because of the COVID vaccine. Profits up to three billion dollars, um, up from eight hundred forty-seven million. That was the part they said wasn't even worth comparing to anything else. Again, eight hundred forty-seven million in profits this quarter a year ago, up to three billion. That is just stellar. Vaccine revenue goes from two billion to fourteen billion in thirteen weeks, which is to say, over a billion dollars in vaccine revenues every week for this company. Can't say I'm surprised. We're living and in a, a Pfizer 40, and Moderna world. Yeah, and then a $42 billion for the year in vaccine. But that's backward looking. Let's look forward. Uh, the big news from Pfizer is going to be for the next year is going to be about something we haven't heard a lot of about Paxlovid. Paxlovid is their oral COVID-19 treatment, the first one on the market. There will ultimately surely be many. If we wanted to compare this to HIV, there were ultimately... Um, nearly a dozen drugs that help treat the, that um, horrible disease. Uh, that might be the case with COVID, but right now there's, it's one. There is one oral treatment out there in, in Paxlovid. Now, they offered for the first time guidance on how much they expect to sell. So in the context of, of the first year you know, of sales for the vaccine, which is $3 billion, or as I, meant, sorry, as I mentioned, $2 billion in revenues for 2021 for the vaccine, grew to 14 billion. Well, they're predicting $22 billion in revenues from Paxlovid. And this is something um, I wanna alert our listeners to, cause you're not gonna hear a lot about this, I think for a while, but it's gonna ultimately become important. In order to get Paxlovid, you need certain treatment courses to prepare your body for Paxlovid. So it's, it's a multi-product treatment. It's not just you take a pill and you get better from COVID. How do you have to and prepare so, your body? There's, there's other stuff that, that Pfizer sells that you'll have to take first before you get the Paxlovid. And so it's, a, so it's not a singular pill, a singular treatment. There are other companies that are working on that, um, which will be simpler. And we'll, so we'll see what happens in the marketplace. Again, they're guiding to $22 billion in revenues because they're going to be out there first with this product, negotiating with lots of countries. Um, and indeed, uh, CEO Albert Borla, who we've heard from in the show before, um, says the numbers could be, as he puts it, way bigger than what they're predicting right now, but they just don't know. And I, I think that ultimately guidance uh, is, could be affected by when competitors come on the market and if their product not just is uh, has the same or better efficacy, but if it's easier to take. If it's one pill to take, if it's a couple pills to take, it's going to be easier than the Pfizer treatment. Uh, so we'll see what happens with Paxlovid. But again, they're putting some big numbers out here. Here is CEO Albert Borla saying, again, this could be way bigger than what they're predicting right now. On Paxlovid, clearly, the um, numbers could become uh, way bigger than what we have right now. But this is not something that we have done in the past and we don't plan to do right now to give based on uh, what could be the potential as a guidance. We are giving guidance based on what it is more or less secure, either signed deals or already agreed but not signed yet. Uh, deals, but agreed prices and volumes. I mean, so uh, clearly, uh, if, if you remember uh, when we started with uh, the vaccine, of, uh, we, in the beginning we had a guidance of I think 15 billion in the first quarter, something like that. Eventually, we made 36. Here we start even stronger uh, in our first productions with Paxlovid. So, and that's why we manufacture and to move ahead with our plans. And already we are at 120 million 
treatments and we have the ability to go higher um, uh, if the discussions that we're having materialize all. And yes, manufacturing a huge part of this, not just having a treatment, but getting to make the treatment and make enough of it on time in such a big rush when, as we mentioned, COVID deaths uh, right now uh, in a lot of places, including California, surging at huge levels. And there will be certainly other um, uh, forms of COVID uh, in the near future that uh, we'll want to have treatments for. Yeah, and I think the numbers will continue to go up, especially as mask mandates fall, um, you know, Good business for Pfizer, I guess, one way to look at it. But, you know, it's, it causes me to have a little caution anytime you hear a CEO say, you know, but the numbers could be better. They might be better than this, you know. The market, uh, uh, for what it's worth, not bidding the shares up too much today, as you mentioned, uh, on, on the heels of that news. But uh, like I said, I'm, my eye certainly is on other competition that's going to come forward looking at what's happened with other um, global uh, pandemics and epidemics and just big diseases that have required lots of different treatments, not just one. Corey, what's your next drill down? My family favorite, well, my oldest son's favorite, Chipotle. Chipotle trades under CMG. Uh, shares are basically flat if you look at a one-year chart and way off the high of just over 1,900 bucks a share that it reached last September. What's going on with Chipotle? Well, interesting earnings report from Chipotle. I mentioned my oldest son, uh, a minor crisis in the household, uh, the Johnson household this weekend, when he called me needing the car because he'd accidentally placed an in-store order online, not a delivery order online. <laughs> minor yeah. crisis. He was good with it. But he's like, when are you going to be back with a car? Oh, yeah, he drives now, too. But you didn't you know get, that with all get, of, in, with my get him his own car. I've only got one driver among my four teenagers right now. That's going to change quicker than oh, I want. Goodness. In any case, um, uh, Chipotle, um, interesting times for this company, obviously. I thought when I listened to the conference call, I'd hear a lot more about what was happening with customers. Uh, what I heard about was what's happening, you know, uh, was their first mention of COVID, for example, wasn't about customers returning. It was about staff and their ability to get staff and COVID being a hindrance to being able to staff their restaurants fully. Um, uh, digital sales, as I mentioned, uh, with my son, uh, the digital sales, this is kind of interesting. And I think it, you wouldn't think about digital transformation when you think, uh, during COVID, you think about zoom, right? You think about Google, you think about, uh, work from home and so on. Well, digital sales for, uh, from 2019 for, uh, Chipotle were up 350% last year to $3.4 billion. So they really accelerated a program that was underway to get people to order online during uh, COVID. And it, like I said, $3.4 billion in, in annual sales. Uh, so really interesting development there. But I thought the most interesting stuff in this call was about inflation. Inflation is hitting this company. No, inflation, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder, which is to say the inflation you pay is annoying. The inflation you charge, you love. Right. And so you heard that from CEO John Hartung when he talked about uh, they were able to take price increases. Love that part. But they got stuck with beef inflation. They don't like that part. So your, your carne asada from the Chipotle is hitting them where they don't like it, and that's hurting their margins. Here's CEO John Hartung. The key things that are happening as you move from Q4 to Q1 are uh, the menu price increase we took we only, we got like less than a hundred base points of 
uh, impact in the fourth quarter. So we, we took that in December. We'll get the full benefit, uh, benefit of that in, uh, in Q1. Uh, that's going to be offset somewhat by the fact that um, beef inflation has continued. We keep thinking that beef is going to level off and then go down. It just hasn't happened yet. And so while we got a partial quarter of beef inflation during the fourth quarter, we'll get a full quarter uh, you know, of inflation, uh, you know, during that month. So um, with just, you know, mainly those two things alone and then br- brisket, actually brisket uh, does, uh, it's a premium price item, but it's also the premium cost item. So that has a drag on the margin as well. And so that ended during the fourth quarter. So, so yes, expect more increases in Chipotle prices relating to those beef price increases. Um, are you a Chipotle guy? Uh, Isaac, I'm not. Um, I've enjoyed my Chipotle, Chipotle in my time, but it's not, I don't gravitate toward Chipotle like a lot of people do. I feel like we have so many great choices for Mexican food in California. Why would you go to Chipotle? I mean, you know, to be honest, I think Chipotle is a pretty good example. If you want a burrito, they're going to, they have a great burrito. Yeah. Can't really go wrong, but good uh, luck with it. Enjoy that. Yeah, I think I will. Well, you will also enjoy then completely unrelated the internet security products of SailPoint. What a transition. Uh, interesting company, though. Uh, yeah. uh, focusing on, on a different way to provide security mm-hmm. for companies uh, uh, on the interwebs um, and in, a, in a changing paradigm with people working from home, with people with hackers uh, uh, rising up all over the world. Uh, SailPoint CEO Mark McLean talks to us about that approach right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down Podcast. Uh, As promised, we've got the CEO of SailPoint, Mark McLean, joins us from Lovely Austin, Texas. This is the time of the year when we all wish we were in Texas. Well, maybe not, you know, especially in, in the COVID hotspots where we've got them uh, in Texas doing uh, a little bit better. Um, hey, uh, Mark, I, so I've, I've read through your SEC filings. I've listened to your conference calls. I've gone over your uh, press releases. I've done a, a, a ghetto model of your company. And yet, I don't understand what makes SailPoint different from... Mm other security companies. So let me ask you to, to give us kind of a top level explanation of, of what the product is that is so different than what might be offered by a Zscaler or a Symantec or a Cisco security, or I don't know, like tell me what the product is. And, and then maybe also tell me who your competitors are when you show up, when your salespeople show up knocking on doors. Okay. Zoom doors. Thanks, Corey. And, and great to spend time with you. Thank you for the opportunity to spend a few minutes together. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I guess the simplest way to describe what we do, and uh, I, I t- say this is the, if your grandmother were to ask you, I doubt she will, but if your grandmother were to ask you what we do, I always like to say we answer three seemingly simple but actually quite difficult questions to answer in a large-scale enterprise. Who currently has access to what information resources, what technology resources? How does that compare to who should have access? So we're sort of talking about actual state compared to desired state. And then the toughest question to answer well of all is, are they doing what I expect them to do with that access? Because if they're not, that actually might be a sign that they've been compromised, right? Or it might be a sign that they've become a bad actor. So, but the, getting even the first two questions answered, 
do we really have a good grasp of all of the access that's happening in our organization by employees, contractors, partners, anyone who might access our systems? And does that align correctly with what I expect to be true based on my policies? And generally speaking, the answer is no. And that's why companies have a lot of issues. So uh, this, this is the, the uh, zero trust approach that companies like Zscaler have, have adapted and like uh, um, uh, many others have adapted. Um, where there, where it's not the castle. We've talked about this in the show before, so regular listeners know it's not the castle and moat. It's not. Right. We're going to build a wall that no one can get through. We're going to build a. We're going to build a door that just the right people can get through, and then we'll see what they do when they're in, in the in the in the castle. Well, and, and let's keep your metaphor going. I like to stretch the castle to a modern castle that has badges and badge readers for ways to get in and out of the rooms in the castle, Corey. And when you take that metaphor for a second, right, where where a lot of focus on the industry is is on what's called access privilege, you know, can, um, single sign-on, multi-factor authentication, some fancy sounding terms. Right. So basically like, ideally the you Octa, verify- The Okta solution. That is the Okta solution, right. Yes. You're really, first I want to know you're really Corey, and then I want to make it easy for you to get to what you should have access to to do your job, right? Well, back to our badge readers in the castle, Corey, one of the things that, that seems to make the likes go on a little bit for folks on, like if you have a big building with a lot of, you know, floors and rooms within those buildings and all that, there's badges and badge readers all over a building like that. When you told your badge up, which is your authentication, that's, hey, I'm Corey, I've got my badge. What What is it that causes any given badge reader to turn green or red, right? There's some sort of policy that had to be designed and implemented that says, hey, Corey can get under the first floor, the third floor, and the fifth floor. And on the third floor, he can get into five conference rooms and he can get into a special closet that has the servers because he's an IT guy, right? But Corey, but Corey the CFO, can't go into the kitchen and change the recipe to put more garlic in the chicken soup. That's because that's highly secure, Corey. Chicken soup is very important to the organization's success. But I think soul, at the end of <laughs> the soul of the organization. Uh, but I think at some level that that seems to help people understand we're not the we're not the badge or the badge reader. We're the logic that turns the badge reader red or green because you've defined policy for what Corey should be able to do based on what his role, that's a fancy term in our space, what your role is in the organization. And in keeping that straight, Corey, in the modern enterprise where you've got multiple generations of technology from mainframes up to current SaaS apps, and you've got thousands, if not tens of thousands of people trying to, do, to to make all those decisions stay current all the time that the right people have access to the right things. It's really hard in a big organization. Our software is what keeps all that straight. I was amazed when I went from working at a place, uh, I used to work at Bloomberg and Bloomberg has oh, sure. really intense uh, security protocols because the client data is, is of course so important. And the client right. data is, is sacrament and, 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 and uh, uh, sacrosanct, I should say, not sacrament. <laughs> uh, but the uh, uh, the client data also is, you know, often billions of dollars um, uh, right. that, that, that Bloomberg people shouldn't see or touch ever and yet interacts with their systems. But uh, to my mind, that got extended to an obscene degree where you couldn't where where a, a, a journalist researching a script couldn't use a Google document sent by a PR firm because Google Docs were blocked from the company. And then it was it made it hard to work at a place. My subsequent employer, Ripple, had a very which was more concerned with security, had a very different sort of notion, again, driven by this identity mm. um, uh, uh, concept 
that certain people could see the things that they were supposed to see. And it was presumed that you were, if you were in the company, you were not a bad actor. It was, it was right. kind of the opposite. It was, it was, do you trust the, the, the person you've already employed or do you not trust the person you've already employed? Right. And I think that that is a, it's a sort of a, a philosophical concept that has come yes. down to the application of, of security systems. That's right. How has that, uh, that philosophical difference impacted <clears throat> the growth of your company? Oh, but that's a good question, um, Corey. Uh, you know, at one level, what you're saying, and I, I've used this term sometimes people that are newer than you are, I guess, to security, like there's always a tension between convenience and control. It's sort of what you were just talking about, right? Like, on the one hand, you wanted to make it as easy as possible for people inside and outside the company to do their work, to, you know, get the information they need, share information, all of that, right? Collaboration, super hot topic in the market today, right? And and up against that is the desire to control all of that at a level that protects the company's assets and resources, right? So what helps us, your, your question is, how does this benefit us? Well, what's changed in, in the world of technology, and, and, and we serve kind of the mid-large enterprise segment, so kind of big to mid-sized to very, very, very large enterprises around the globe is for all of them, the fundamental tech stack has changed dramatically in the last 15 to 20 years. They used to control most aspects of the stack. It was their computer sitting on a desk at work over their network to their data center with their applications, right? And now it's my device over the big eye internet to a SaaS app in the cloud that my IT team doesn't control. So the the fact that unifies all of that to the company is the individual, it's the identity, right? What companies are grasping more and more is, yes, I should secure my networks to the extent I have my own private networks, my data, my applications, my laptops and phones and any technology devices I have. But what I really need to think about more and more is, what are the identities that, that matter to me? My Again, these roles, employees, contractors, various roles within the org. And am I sure those people get access to what they need and no more, no less to do their job? Now I can still answer your philosophical question, Corey, of do I fundamentally take a posture of more trust or a posture of less trust? And that may vary based on the sensitivity or value of the information, right? Certain information I should be able to make fairly accessible. Other information may be very inaccessible because there's different value ascribed to it. To your point about the Google Doc with PR information, that should have a very low control. It shouldn't be kept terribly sacred, right? But but the financials of the organization would be in that super careful, super secret bucket, right? So it's an interesting and ever-going uh, uh, issue that goes back to as far as you can go back, who's in control and how much do you want to let people have their own control? Uh, it it's, really it's, it's interesting to watch. So how does that affect? So you guys have gone through this really dramatic transformation uh, that mm -hmm. so many software companies have gone through of shifting from on-premise software to mm -hmm. software in a cloud and, and from, from uh, sales of chunks of software packages mm -hmm. and so on to subscription. Um, mm -hmm. How has that ongoing debate about control affected the, the six, I will go ahead and call it a success, a very successful shift you've had towards subscription revenues. Well, it's another really good question, Corey. I think on the one hand, we were hesitant, reticent to go there ourselves because we're a very market-driven company. We pride ourselves on listening very closely to the market and to our customers. As recently as like seven to eight years ago, our target customers were telling us, I don't want this in the cloud. I don't right. want this in the cloud. Right. And what I remind people of, in some number of single digit years, folks that pay attention to the industry, I know you know this, we flipped from, here's what a big enterprise would say, this is such critical important data or applications, it has to live in my data center. Sure. Some number of years we flipped to, this is so critical and important, it has to live at Amazon or Azure because That's interesting. they've got better security than I do, right? We literally did a 180 
in the enterprise, right? Where the really super careful stuff actually, now we actually believe more of it is safer. For most big enterprises, they actually believe it's safer at Google, Amazon, or or Microsoft because those guys have such deep and fantastic security controls, it's safer. So as that shift happened, as the customers said, hey, we're comfortable that we can keep this critical information in the cloud, we we responded and said, let's, let's, let's deliver via a cloud SaaS model, right? And of course, as you point out, that has a lot of benefits to the financial markets because we have then predictable subscription revenue, recurring revenue, all of those wonderful things instead of the quote, lumpy software sales model. So yeah, I mean, in many ways, it was a market response, Corey, to say, as the customers are comfortable, that's where we're going. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't own your stock. I won't own your stock. I don't care about your stock sort of to some degree. <laughs> Uh, because I, I just, I, you and I talked about this off camera and I talk about this all the time, but uh, the market is so, the the market, the morons on business TV, one of which I was, um, talk so you about- you got off TV and know you're, you're not a moron now that you're off TV? Is that how that works? Oh, I'm still a moron. Uh, just, you don't get to see what a moron I am. You can only imagine. Um, I, uh, you know, th this constant focus on delivering for the quarter or the next 13 weeks will tell us how the company is doing. I fully believe in getting your regular blood work. However, it does, it's just an indication of the whole health of the, of the, of the, uh, the body of the, the company. Um, Good so a lot of your sales are through, um, and I don't know how much, I don't, maybe you can help me with this, is, is through what you guys call your uh, integrator channel. That mm -hmm. is Accenture, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, KPMG, Pricewaterhouse, right. um, all accounting firms with yep. consulting arms. Um, mm -hmm. uh, how important is or how big is that business? They're all important. All your children are your favorite. How big a business <laughs> is that for you? And how has that affected your shift to uh, the cloud? Good question. Um, just a slight clarification, Corey. It's not a channel as in the selling. Like typically those contracts are still with our company, but those big SIs are heavily influential, right? They are right. alongside us working together with the customer. It's a knit, but sometimes people assume all those folks are actually reselling our product. They're generally not. They're, okay. they're the customers contracting they're the, with us. They're the system integrators. And and we are hand in glove working together with the customer through the sales cycle and into Got the it. implementation. So and, it's a and, fair. And your resellers yeah. are more companies like Optiv. Right, exactly. We're there more truly a little more arm's length taking the deal kind of to the customer directly with our assistance behind the scenes. But in many of these mid to large enterprises, we are hand in glove working with all the big players you mentioned. And the truth is, it's a good observation. They thought, dead honest with you, they thought as we shifted from software to SaaS, there would be a degradation of their implementer opportunity. They thought, oh, we do all this work to customize your software. When you go to SaaS, of course, it's just one copy of the product in the cloud. Why would we get work? What, what we tried to assure them, and I think we're now seeing to be very true, our, our partners would validate this for you, is the work that's interesting is helping companies apply their business policies, their processes to our technology. And that has to happen whether it's a SaaS version of the product or an on-prem software version of the product. The, customer, the product isn't, quote, customized, but it is configured and, and managed in such a way that it works for that business, much like Salesforce. Like Salesforce is one copy in the cloud, but people use Salesforce differently because of what they're doing in their business. It's a similar thought. Like there's plenty of consulting around our product, just like there's around Workday and Salesforce, even though those are SaaS products, because every company implements them in a unique way based on their business model and their policies. So part of that process of, of being in the cloud and, and um, uh, the way you report your numbers, I thought I always read a 10K looking for a gotcha. And the first gotcha I found in yours was, Oh, they're saying that we don't believe that our percentage of revenues from subscriptions is important anymore. You know, I've got I've got models of companies I've been modeling for years, uh, 
uh, some stick out, inner workings, Tesla, where they just, they tell you certain numbers are really, really important every quarter until the numbers start to get bad. Vistaprint used to do this. And then they just say, they say, we're going to stop reporting that number. doesn't mean anything. <laughs> and so I looked and it, it is true that your numbers uh, show a divergent story, which is your percentage of subscription bookings mm-hmm. is a majority of revenues, about two thirds of revenues, maybe even 80%. Your percentage mm-hmm. of, uh, so about, sorry, about uh, two thirds, your percentage of actual revenues from revenues. subscriptions is, is a much smaller uh, percent, about 25% or so 30%. So, Explain that to me. I think I get it, but I, explain it to me. Why? Why? If you're why are you saying it's not important when in fact subscript when non subscription revenues are most of your revenues? Yeah, I hope we didn't actually say it's not important. I better go back and read that detailed uh, piece of information. What what we've tried to say is th- there is a lag, as you know, um, when you shift from a non subscription. Sorry, let me be careful with my terms. A non SaaS model to a SaaS model, there's a lag in revenue recognition behind bookings, right? There's always a, hey, you take the deal and then the revenue gets recognized over time, which is what people ultimately love about SaaS, right? Because it layer cakes and builds this nice predictable revenue stream over time. And who doesn't but want in the that? Short Forget term, Wall Street, everyone wants that, right? Exactly, we all want predictable revenue over time, correct? What we've tried to say is, look, our subscription line actually until recently, Corey, we didn't break it out, comprises both our maintenance. Remember when you sell software, you have an ongoing maintenance stream, which is a subscription revenue stream. They they pay maintenance right. over time. So we had a lot of maintenance revenue because we had traditionally sold software. We started layering in SaaS revenue. And then the twist that was a little interesting that honestly, we were driven a little faster here by the market than we thought. We still had some set of customers that wanted our traditional software, but instead of buying a perpetual license plus maintenance, the old way of doing that, there's a thing called a term license that looks much more like a SaaS subscription than it does a traditional perpetual license. So when we report something ARR, um, annual recurring revenue, it's all three of those. It's term license revenue, maintenance revenue, and SaaS revenue. And all of those together are becoming the bulk of our revenue as as the bookings continues to work its way over time through the system, the bulk of that revenue will be SaaS revenue, not term or maintenance. But today we're still in that transitional period. So you've got a mixture of recurring revenue streams. That's why we decided to start reporting ARR to give people a view right. of the predictable recurring and, revenue streams. And the, yeah, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds with that. I, pro- I appreciate okay. that. Um, you talk about customers getting a one-year maintenance license, which was interesting to me. I would have thought the licenses would have gone three or five years that's probably about how long the customer. Well, for SaaS, it is. It's typically a three-year SaaS agreement, Corey. When we do a perpetual deal, that first revenue recognition is the value of the license in year one maintenance. Then we start doing maintenance over time. But for SaaS, our standard SaaS deal is a three-year term, three-year license deal, three-year term deal. And again, that helps in the predictability a lot. Hey, I want to, I can keep talking to you forever, but I can't keep talking to you forever. Um, uh, (laughs) I want to talk to you a little bit about where we are with- the way this really, really bizarre point in our economy, uh, mm. driven by COVID uh, principally, and also driven by kind of the different waves of COVID and how they've kind of changed the work calendars, mm. right? We're mm. seeing yet another okay. one where a lot of companies, you know, our, our uh, uh, we typically broadcast this podcast from uh, the ferry building in San Francisco, which would normally be filled with lots of workers surrounding mm-hmm. us from PG&E and Google and and, and Facebook and, and Salesforce, all of which have thousands to tens of thousands of employees within a five block radius. All those companies uh, are not having their workers come back in January as they had initially planned to. Yep. Um, right. I wonder how that changes in your 10K. You talk about how most of your revenues or your biggest uh, quarter is the fourth quarter. 
uh, typically. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I reference your 10K, which is nearly a year old right now, right? Looking back. And <laughs> right. so you say you know, your sales been generally highest in the fourth quarter, lowest in the first quarter. I wonder if that changed. I'm not asking you to tell me what the quarter mm. looks like, but I'm wondering if that changes given where we are, that things have been pushed out. Certainly, if you, if you want to use your example of a badge, we had a lot more badges used in the first quarter of 2022 than in the fourth quarter of 2021, I think. But maybe well, not it's re- now with yeah, what's going on with Omicron. V- well, it's a good point. I think vis-a-vis our particular value prop, it doesn't necessarily change whether you are working at home or not in terms of the business's desire to protect access to its critical information. Whether you're logging in from home, an office, a Starbucks, doesn't really matter. What what did happen as a result of even back in 20, much less 21, Corey, for us was when people started to run home to work, what we heard from a lot of CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, was it sort of, I I used the metaphor at the time of shining a a flashlight on a cobweb. The cobweb was already there, but the light exposed it. And and, and sending people home exposed again, they all kind of knew it, but it exposed again, oh my goodness, if I don't have a lot of control over exactly what Corey has access to, if Corey ever gets compromised, the damage, they call it the attack surface sometimes, is much worse, right? Right. Well, Everybody understood that when you quit working in an office primarily and started working from home or Starbucks, maybe on your kid's laptop because yours was re- restarting, you know, all of a sudden that security posture diminished. Like you were less safe than you were when you're in the office. And it reminded people, oh, no, I better clean up all that access because if Corey gets compromised and the likelihood of Corey getting compromised just went up because he's working from home in Starbucks now. I'm going to be even more exposed if he gets compromised. That was sort of the connection people made as a result of COVID. Like you were already potentially a risk if you got compromised sitting at your desk, but now your likelihood of compromise has gone up. And I know you probably have more than you should have. So if you get compromised, I'll have more things that I have to worry about. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's not bullish for you in 2024, 25, right? It's not bullish. That's not so bullish, right? If if there's a big one-time shift in work to home, there was, Even if a lot of it is point, lasting. Think of cobwebs. Like it, it, it sort of said, oh, I've got this. I've got to clean this up. But it's like once I'm aware of the problem, the problem doesn't go away when you come back to the office. I'm, I'm reminded that your access needs to be kept up to date and current or I am exposed if you ever get compromised. And everybody knows the primary attack vector of the bad guys now is to compromise the individual identity. That's what they're after. They're trying to break into you. They become you somehow so they can use your access and go do bad things. Um, interesting. It's a, it's, it's such a fascinating uh, field and it's one that I think it's, it's hard to keep track of. And I, I should get mm-hmm. back to the initial question. Cause I don't know if I got the perfect answer from it. Who are okay, the sorry. direct competitors? No, so I, ah. I'm, I, I'm supposed to say, I'm supposed to get the answers. If you don't give them, you're winning. Maybe <laughs> what, uh, wh- who are the direct competitors? Who, who, who might we, I don't want to say compare you to, but when your yeah. salespeople are knocking on a door, they're saying, no, you should buy SailPoint. You shouldn't buy this stuff. Here's why. Well, who are those comps? Yeah, there's historically what I would call the big legacy systems players like IBM, Oracle, Computer Associates, now CA, Broadcom, right? Those were the traditional competitors. They've kind of faded over time. They just haven't invested in this space as much. Um, We've got some smaller, less known competitors because literally none of them are public companies, Corey, but mid-sized private companies. Um, And then the the ones that people are curious about uh, often are either Okta or Microsoft and and a few of the other emerging identity players. But as you and I were discussing earlier, to date, 
our focus has been in a different part of the landscape than some of those players. They've been more focused on single sign-on, multi-factor authentication and access, not what we call governance and security of identities. Some of those players have indicated they're coming toward us more in the future. What we can tell you is we feel good about our competitive position in this mid-large enterprise segment because we've been in it for well over a decade and very strong position in, in those markets. And so we see those folks potentially starting to show up more competitively, but our position is quite strong and, and, our, and our, <laughs> our solution is considered well ahead of any of those potential competitors at this point. Mark McLean is CEO of SailPoint. Uh, we really do appreciate your time. Thanks for joining the Drill Down Podcast. Well, Corey, thanks so much for the opportunity. Look forward to hopefully chatting again in the future. Really enjoyed it. All right, coming up next on the Drill Down, we're going to have the Drill Down bite that one number that tells us a whole lot about SailPoint right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to Drill on any of your favorite podcast platforms, but you probably enjoy it on your smart speaker. Try it with your Google or your, uh, your Amazon Alexa and say, hey, smart speaker, you know, fill in the blank. Play the Drill on podcast and you'll hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we're back with the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Sale point, Isaac, interesting company. It's amazing to me that these security companies all get lumped in together and they're also very different and pretty interesting how they're managing their businesses. Well, uh, SailPoint has had a lot of success in adding customers. And so that number, that drill down bite that tells us a whole lot, they have 1,753 customers as of the end of last calendar year. We have yet to see their 10K for this year. But that's a 50% increase, or 49% to be exact, over uh, 2018. So in a two-year period, they added 49% new customers. Um, and as we see from a lot of these software companies, particularly software as a service companies, they grow those businesses, um, they get their foot in the door, and then they start to grow. Uh, and certainly a positive sign uh, for this fast-growing um, security company. Yeah, that is. those are some really good numbers. All right, you've been listening to the Drill On Podcast. We do appreciate the time you give us. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. I appreciate his time. And our editor extraordinaire, Ben Wilson. Thank you, Ben. This has been a production of the Business Podcast Network.